So, any issues on last week's chapter? Chapter 4. Okay, so we're going to... Now, I put this up here again, although I know uh, some of you are going camping, father-son camp out this week on that weekend, but um, this this is a, an event that if you can make one or both days, that would be great. All right. Um, they only had three. Only had three questions, so they had a light week, right? Easy reading, three questions and answer. This should be pretty pretty straightforward. Okay. The coming week now we're going to get into logic. Not an exhaustive by any means. Not an exhaustive uh, study of logic. That would take several courses. Even in college, there are several levels of logic that you can take. This is just an overview, and I've actually supplemented what the book offers on this uh, on this subject. So <clears throat> there's a little extra here for no charge. So the chapter title is, What are Inferences and How Do They Work? So you have some... You have some fill-in-the-blanks here I put in your um, notebook inserts. And so just tell me to slow down if I go through too fast where you don't get them written in the blanks, okay? An inference is a process of drawing a conclusion from a particular set of facts or experiences. Um, These definitions come from a uh, book on formal logic by Stephen Gimbel. He teaches at Gettysburg College and uh, teaches a very, very good online course. <clears throat> um, I say this is related to the to the term uh, argument. And in our textbook, you probably will notice that the term inference and argument and reasoning may seem to be used interchangeably. So there is there is a fine, uh, kind of a fine difference between inference and argument. We'll, I'll point that out in a second here. So we have some other definitions. Um, so what is logic? The the study of logic is um, is about rational argumentation. Rational means having grounds or warrant to show a belief is true. Now, those terms are already familiar with you, probably from previous chapters. They should be. Anyway, at least the warrant. A belief is rational if we have good reason to believe it is at least probably the case in reality. Okay. The, uh, The term argument is a... It's a set of sentences such that one sentence, the conclusion, is claimed to follow from the other sentences, which are known as the premises. Now, take note that when, that when we use the, the term argument in philosophy, uh, we're not talking about a, an emotional confrontation <laughs> like some people have. We're talking about uh, a, a logical argument giving reasons, and then an opposing view, kind of in a debate, okay? 
that's what that's what should take place in a debate. It shouldn't be confrontational, although sometimes they are. If you watch political debates, they can get kind of ugly. <clears throat> so the fine distinction between an argument and an inference is an inference is the process, but an argument is the the set of sentences that that uh, are used in an inference. But don't take too much. Uh, don't overthink that uh, too much because it is interused, interchangeably used. Okay, so uh, let's move on here. There's my reference. Two aspects of of logic that are very important is soundness and validity. And what we mean by soundness is that it's well grounded. The premises must be true, or at least probably true. As you know, we've talked about that already. We can't always show that they are 100% true, except maybe in mathematics. But there are some there are some premises we can say they are. Uh, we can be so assured of them that any any skeptical approach to them is uh, really beyond consideration. In a uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that in, in, in a minute, a little farther down. But um, so they must correspond to the way things really are, and we would need to perhaps show some warrant for those premises. And then, of course, the form of the argument must be valid. It must also pass the. Uh, Criterion for indefeasibility. Yeah, I'll wait while you're writing. Okay, I changed screen. You run a, you run out of ink there. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. We can give you another pen if you need it. You need another writing tool. We usually have uh, a bunch of these in the room here. But I hope that one doesn't run out of ink. It skips sometimes. All right. And go on to the next screen. Okay, we're good. So we have kinds of inferences. Um, the first three are in the book, but I've added a couple more. And so there are deductive inferences and inductive inferences. And I was pleased to see the authors included this one, abductive inferences. Um, I don't recall hearing that term before reading this book, actually. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's included. And we'll get into more detail on each of these three, but just uh, for your personal reference, there are mathematical proofs uh, would come under this category, as well as reasoning by analogy, and there's there's a few others. All right, so let's look at um, deductive deductive inferences, and so these have certain properties that are uh, essential to. Reasoning by deductive method. Almost every book will say that 
a deductive argument begins with general statement and then it reasons to the particular. So starts broad and brings you to a conclusion about something specific. Now, I know a professor of uh, argumentation and logic who says that there are exceptions to this as there are in inductive reasoning. And I'm trying to find where he lists an example. (laughs) I'm not going to question it. So I wasn't able to find an example that I'm sure he gives somewhere. All right, so the second essential property is this one. If the premises are true and the form is valid, then the conclusion is certainly true. And just as another reminder, the degree of certainty we can have uh, can be so high that any claim to the contrary is beyond consideration. Think of a court of law in a uh, in a in a very serious crime. If a person's convicted, uh, it's on the basis of evidence that leads to a charge of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So even in a court of law, if they convict someone of murder and he's going to go to prison for life or um, be uh, sent to the electric chair, some form of capital punishment, it's not 100%. In most cases, unless he confesses, all right? But it's beyond beyond the shadow of a reasonable doubt. Okay? Now, there's a couple corollaries that go along with this. Um, And this is kind of intuitive. Deductive reasoning is analytic. That is, it's ordered, it's systematic, it's, it's methodical. And then the second one is that a deductive argument in the conclusion... It, it doesn't provide any new information. Unlike an inductive argument, as we'll see, can lead to a, a discovery of something. But what, what a deductive argument does is it just confirms in a, in a formal way what's already understood from the premises. So it, it helps these two ideas to come into focus, into clear focus, to draw a conclusion. And where premises uh, require warrants, then with the premises accepted, then we can say that, yeah, this, this is what it is. And we'll have some, um, we'll have some examples here in a second. All right, so the form of a deductive argument is called a syllogism, and it consists of at least two premises, there could be more, followed by a conclusion. So the first premise, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, begins with a broad or general statement, and it's taken to be true. The second premise is more narrow or uh, specific, and it, too, is taken to be true. And then the conclusion is a 
very specific statement that's deduced from the premises. Are we good? Sometimes I can see with my glasses often. Other times I just can't get my eyes to focus. It just, um, I hope it's not distracting. I keep taking these on and off. All right. <clears throat> so let's, uh, let's see what types of deductive syllogisms there are. And I'm not sure, I don't think these are, these are not in your textbook, so no, no extra charge here. There's a categorical type of syllogism. And categorical means that we have a, we have a set of objects or ideas and they are in a category. And so the syllogism then compares this set with another category. And so it could include all items in a category or some of them or none of them. And the idea of some, though, is that it's it's not quantitative. It doesn't tell us how many. Some would be at least one. And it could be uh, as many as all minus one. Okay? And some might even say it could even include all of them. If you, if you were to do an exhaustive uh, study of what was included which is seldom possible, but all right. So it's, it's, a, it's a categorical type that's all, some, or none. none. Then another is a conditional. If something, then something is the conditional. And then disjunctive, which is uh, sometimes called hypothetical. They're, they can be used interchangeably. And I think I have one book that makes a distinction between those two, but uh, we don't have time to, and don't even need to bother with that. So dis, disjunctive is an either-or set of propositions. Okay. We have, oh, no, no blanks there, right? So we're good. Now let's take a, a look at uh, an example here. This is the chestnut that's in every logic book. <laughs> a categorical syllogism. Premise one, all men are mortal. Premise two, Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. This uh, syllogism is both valid and well-grounded. It would be pretty tough to argue that all men are not mortal. So we have near absolute certainty about that, right? And Socrates as a man is, is given, if you take him to be the ancient uh, philosopher, he was a man, maybe you have to say he was. And so we conclude that Socrates is mortal. Now, there's really nothing new here, right? But what do we do? 
Well, we we put things in, into focus. We brought a conclusion here that is intuitively stated in the in the two propositions. But we can have someone present a proposition, a set of propositions that is not valid. And I'll show you what we mean here. First, let me identi- let me show you how you can identify this. Okay, premise one: all men are mortal. All men is the antecedent in premise one, and mortal is the consequent. Premise two affirms the antecedent in a positive syllogism like this. If the second premise doesn't affirm the antecedent but affirms the consequent, then it's false. Or it's invalid, really, would be the proper term for it. So let me show you. Let's turn things around here a little bit. All men are mortal. Socrates is mortal. Those are true True statements still, right? Therefore, Socrates is a man. That's invalid, even though the premises are true. Because maybe Socrates might be a turtle. You know, it might be your your cat. So we can't be uh, we can't be sure that Socrates is, is a man in in this instance because turtles are mortal and just about every living thing is mortal, right? All right, let's try something else. Here's one. All heavenly bodies are made of green cheese. The moon is a heavenly body. Therefore, the moon is made of green cheese. Now, unless your science education ended with the Wallace and Gromit movie, A Grand Day Out, where they go to the moon and they get cheese, and you haven't been to science class since then, you know that heavenly bodies are not made of green cheese. Okay, so the argument, though, is valid. The logic is valid. But the premises, at least the first premises, is false. Now, the moon is a heavenly body. So, does that help you... Get through this a little bit. Pretty pretty intuitive, I think. Okay. A conditional syllogism has the uh, same two premises in this case. And this is a this is a very important one, by the way. Um, did I put this in your notes? Did I write this one out in your notes? Yeah. Give you this? Okay. This is the moral argument for the existence of God. And it uh, it's it's a powerful argument, and it's one worth not only knowing the argument, but learning as much as you can about it, so you can use it. We don't have time for that. But if objective moral values and duties exist, then God exists. We'd say that's a true statement. Uh, somebody might try and object to that. But um, there's a way to counter that. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Almost everybody, even atheists, will not argue that point. Uh, some do, though. 
And so the conclusion is, if the two premises are accepted, then therefore God exists. Okay, so that's conditional. If, then. Make sense? And then let's look at the last one here. A disjunctive syllogism, that's an either-or. And this is the Kalam cosmological argument that uh, Dr. William Lane Craig did his first dissertation on. And it's not an argument for the existence of God, but it has theological implications. Okay, either the universe had a beginning or it has existed forever in the past. Can you think of anything in between? No. Okay, so you can't really attack it as um, an argument missing with the excluded middle, right? Because there's nothing, nothing in between. There's no other alternatives. Either it began or it existed forever. Well, there are many reasons why the universe could not have existed forever in the past. So that one is ultimately true. So therefore, the universe had a beginning. And that could take you to another argument. If the universe had a beginning, then it had a cause. And that's... Okay? That's another argument. And as uh, my professor of geophysics used to uh, he'd put these equations on the board, he'd prove uh, something uh, in the class. And when he was all done, showed the proof and how cool it was, he turned to the class and he'd go, neat, no? <laughs> so I think that's neat. I didn't come up with it. so. But I'm, I'm glad somebody did. Okay, then there's a, uh, a Venn diagram. You probably are familiar with these. This is... Uh, an invention of a fellow named John Venn back in the late 1800s. And so we, we start with a circle that represents, in this case, um, a set of things, in this case, all things that are mortal. And so we then put another circle in there that's going to represent all men. And put a man in there. All men are mortal. In fact, for the ladies, let's put a woman in there. Oh, they're holding hands. Isn't that cute? Okay. All men are mortal. And all ladies are mortal. Socrates is a man. Well, let's put Socrates in there. There he goes. All right. So, you can see that this circle is inside the circle of mortals. No problem, right? So then we draw a conclusion. Therefore, Socrates is made of green cheese. Oh, whoops. Wait a minute. How did it? That's a, that's a wrong conclusion. Oh, there we go. Socrates is mortal. All right. I just had to wake everybody up. You know me. You guys that were in trail life, you know, I got a clown around. All right. So they're good. Now, this is a this is a really good statement that's in your book. And I hope this one and another one I'm going to show you in a little bit. You underline it or draw a box around it. But this is a, a statement that may sound like another one that we had. 
Francis Bacon thought that deduction forces us to decide in advance what is or is not true and then interpret the facts in light of the theory. Too often, he thought, we decide what we want to be true or accept what someone else has said about it before we look at what is really there and see what the evidence suggests. What does that sound like, that, a quote that we had before? Remember? Probably the first lesson, Blaise Pascal. Remember that? Are you going to look it up? <laughs> Yeah, you wrote it down. Should be in, probably in your notes. I'll let Mr. Curtis. People almost in, invariably arrive at the belief not on the basis of truth, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Yeah, sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what, not what the evidence suggests, but what we want to be true. Very interesting. All right, we got to move on because. We have to still talk about inductive inferences and abductive inferences. So these have a form, and they're less formal than the deductive arguments, and they may only have one premise followed by a conclusion. And the premises, or premise, uh, identifies a, a representative set of observations of individual things and not... Not exhaustive, probably. All right, and then the conclusion makes a general statement that's taken to be true about all these things. Um, though, again, the conclusion is only probable, not certain. And then finally, the conclusion is not necessarily entailed in the premises. And therefore, <clears throat> it can yield new information and insights. Now, let's uh, let's pull up an example here. <clears throat> we observe that planets in our solar system are spherical in shape. Okay, pretty easy. Therefore, it's reasonable to conclude that all other planets orbiting other stars in this galaxy, that they're also spherical in shape. Reasonable, but somebody might say, who's not too science-minded, well, why can't you have a planet that's a cube, or that's egg-shaped, or that's uh, lumpy? Why not? Well, okay, anticipating that, then we might have to add some warrant for the first one, and that would be maybe a second premise, the sphericity is due to the amount of mass that the planet has and the law of gravity. As you may know, Pluto was found was discovered in 1930 and, I don't know, 20 years or so ago, it was demoted to a planetoid, but it's still spherical. And now they're talking about promoting it back to being a planet. But there are, there are a lot of rocks and stuff roaming around in space, asteroids and comets and other such things. They're not planets and they're lumpy. But the reason why planets are spherical is because of their size. The law of gravity, when they form, causes them to be spherical. 
and I don't mean perfectly spherical. The Earth is not perfectly spherical. It's actually larger in diameter through the equator than it is through the poles, but spherical as a general shape as opposed to uh, cubical or lumpy. Okay? So that's that's an example of an inductive uh, argument. Okay, we're going to move on to the last one, abductive inferences. And these have a form somewhat similar to inductive. Uh, as I said, I, I had not encountered the term to my recollection uh, prior to reading the book. It was always referred to as, a, the, as an inference to the best explanation. And so you may encounter that as a, as a term in some other books if you read elsewhere. Okay, so this is similar to the uh, to the induction in that um, it draws conclusions not necessarily entailed in the premises and it doesn't yield absolute certainty. But it instead, it looks at a particular phenomenon and then it attempts to offer the best explanation for it. And I have, a, I think, a, a pretty good example here. And that is, what is the best explanation for the appearances of Jesus after his crucifixion? And if you've uh, encountered uh, any of the arguments against uh, Christianity, Attacks on the crucifixion that Jesus didn't really, he didn't really die on the, on the cross. Uh, they suppose that, oh, he, he swooned and he revived in the, in the cool of the tomb. Well, that's pretty much been dismissed. Medical doctors have studied, um, many, uh, other examples besides Jesus. There were many people who were crucified in ancient times. And Jesus in particular, when they ran the sword through his uh, abdominal cavity, it went up into the heart and bursted his heart and water and blood came out. And every medical professional that studied this says there's no way that Jesus was not dead when they took him down from the cross. So I'm not going to go into refuting each one of these, but these are just a few. There's about a dozen, and I'll give you four. Um, the disciples didn't actually see Jesus. They were just hallucinating. Well, uh, people seldom hallucinate the same thing. And there were groups of people that saw Jesus all at the same time. It's highly doubtful that they hallucinated the same thing at the same time. Very, very skeptical of that one. And then others would say, well, the story of Jesus' resurrection was made up uh, by the disciples years afterwards. That's been debunked. And then this one, this is a doozy. Muslims promote this one. Uh, that Jesus uh, was a twin. That Mary actually gave birth to twin boys and uh, adopted the twin brother out to a, a nice family uh, outside of Bethlehem, outside of the Jerusalem area and some other part. Uh, and he uh, just decided he was going to go on Ancestry.com, I guess, and try and find his birth family. And 
and just happens to show up right after Jesus is crucified and and identifies himself as Jesus. Well, that's what <laughs> that's what Muslim. Okay, and then we just got one more, and this one is really really radical to a lot of people. Jesus actually rose from the dead. You think? <laughs> I'd stake my life on it. In fact, I'm staking my soul on it. Okay, so how do we decide between two or more competing explanations and uh, and arrive at the uh, the inference for the best explanation? Well. We have some criteria, too, in fact. One is explanatory power. How convincing, how uh, powerful is the explanation for these uh, otherwise unexplained or contrary uh, facts that... People want to argue. One of the reasons that Darwin's uh, theory of evolution by natural selection through genetic mutation took off was because for a lot of naturalists, it had explanatory power. had tremendous explanatory power. Well, then there's explanatory scope. How much of the data does the explanation cover? Say we'll take our four we'll take our four uh, skeptics arguments in the previous one, and we can dismiss them. And the resurrection of Christ, when you dismiss those, explains all the other uh, evidence that's for, that supports the uh, resurrection, that is, um, the disciples all saw the risen Jesus, the tomb was empty, the, um, the disciples, even though they were fearful before, um, at the, before the crucifixion, and many of them ran and hid, they were bold afterwards. What caused the change? Some of them even laid down their life. Now, if they'd made up the story, if they'd stolen the body, as some said, if they'd stolen the body, then uh, then they knew it was a hoax. And people have uh, people have died for things that aren't true, but they didn't know that they were not true. But if the disciples stole the body and, and, and tried to start a new religion, um, they knew it was a hoax. And, and just about every hoax I've, I've read about, people have read about, exposed the perpetrator of the hoax on their deathbed, confesses, hey, this was, this was just something I made up. Uh, we, we see this even in in the news, where people uh, perpetrate hoaxes to, for some reason or other. 
So it remains that Jesus rose from the dead has both explanatory power and explanatory scope as the support for the resurrection being the best explanation of why the disciples changed, uh, how they saw uh, Jesus afterwards, why the tomb was empty. Um, the uh, There's just so many other uh, supporting evidences that we have both um, in the Bible and extra-biblical. Okay, so what criteria then can would detract from a satisfactory explanation? Say like Darwin's theory of evolution. Well, poor quality of the evidence. B1, lack of quantity of the evidence. Uh, when Darwin, there's a, a movie, a documentary by the Discovery Institute, and I think the title of one of them is What Darwin Didn't Know. And of course, he he only had the fossil record. He didn't know anything about DNA and about how proteins fold and uh, all the complex biochemistry that uh, makes up the machinery of life, how complex life actually is. And then implausibility. If the, uh, if the earth is 4.58 billion years old, as uh, conventional science claims, and the first life in microbial form uh, came into existence about 3 billion years ago, there wasn't enough time in 3 billion years, or 30 billion years, or even 30 trillion years, for life to have accidentally through random mutations, evolved to form what we have today. There, the, the improbability is just astronomically beyond our comprehension. It just could not have happened. But if you're an atheist, it's the only game in town. You, you don't have any other... Uh, you don't have any other way out except maybe this one. The use of ad hoc speculation. There's a, uh, a film maybe you've seen, uh, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, where comedian Ben Stein interviews different people, and one of the people, scientists that he interviews, is Richard Dawkins. And so he goes to England and he meets with Dawkins and he asks him, well, where did the first life come from? How did we get life on Earth? Well, Dawkins, realizing the improbability of life just forming from non-life, this chemical evolution is what it's known as, was highly uh, implausible. He invokes an ad hoc hypothesis. Well, we believe that aliens actually came early in the Earth and seeded the planet with life. I mean, that's a face palm, <laughs> and this is this is science, right? Uh, and, I, and I'm not I'm not discounting science. It's science. There's good science, and there's this kind of stuff. It's just an ad hoc speculation. All right. 
One last thing. And I appreciate y'all writing fast so I can get through this on time. There's a there's a there's a, a, a danger. I guess I one comment I'll make here since I got a, a minute. There, there's a danger in uh, a potential error that that rises out of the process of drawing inferences if we're not careful. And it's easy to draw the wrong inference from what we observe and drawing uh, the wrong conclusion from that. And I'm going to give you an example. I guess uh, because my former pastor told this story in church a number of years ago. He was at Shoney's and he was eating at a table and a waitress came up to take his order and as many folks do, they say, well, we're, we're going to have prayer for our meal. Uh, is there anything in particular we can pray for you about? Would you uh, like to share with us? Well, there was a, a, a woman at the, at the drive-through takeout and she could see through the window to the table where Pastor Hester was sitting. And this dear waitress was just uh, pouring her heart out. I mean, she was weeping and wiping her eyes. And and so the lady in the car thinks that this mean guy is just really abusing this poor waitress. So she gets her order. She pulls over into a parking spot, gets out of her car, marches into Shoney's, walks up to Dick Hester's table and gives him the what for, turns and walks out. And his mouth was down to here. He didn't have a chance to say boo. And so next Sunday morning, he says, if there's a... (laughs) If any of you happens to hear this story and you know this lady, please set her straight. <laughs> so, what a terrible thing, especially if she think if she comes to find out that that was a pastor, you know. Well, lesson to be learned. So, one way to uh, put this quote here. This is another one from our authors, Dewan Foreman. This is another one worth underlining or putting a box around in your textbook. Put a sticky note in there, earmark it somehow. Um, I think it's I think it's a really good one. Did I did I put this on your paper so you have it? Did I print it so you don't have to write it out? No. Okay. Well, it's in your book. It's on where did I say it was? On page sixty-two. Okay, it's in your book. And one last comment before we close in prayer. We all have blind spots. Uh, every one of us. We don't. Yeah, we don't. Uh, we don't always see things that are sometimes right under our nose because everybody's doing it. Everybody's got the same idea. But what's problematic is that some folks don't want to hear anything except what will support their present belief. And so when I when I encounter someone, a Christian uh, in particular, and it's a subject that's either not a, an important, not a key doctrine, not an essential doctrine, or not a moral issue, 
and they may indicate that they would like to, you know, know more about this, but when they find it may conflict with what they already believe, and I sense some resistance. Mm. Um, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue. <laughs> we'll just let it go. And so, uh, you know, when you really like to say something, but yeah, no, no, no. And so, with that, I'm gonna shut up. And Pastor Drew is gonna close in prayer for us if he doesn't mind.